Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, we are continuing on with our series of the acts behind indelible hits of the 80s with Cutting Crew's Nick Van Eed. Now, Cutting Crew put out their debut album in 1986, and it spawned three top 40 hits. One for The Mockingbird, which reached number 38, I've Been In Love Before, which reached number 9, and then of course this classic, I Just Died In Your Arms, which was number 1, and it was a huge hit around the world. Now, unfortunately, they were not really able to capitalize on the success of this debut album. Their second album, The Scattering, was delayed for legal reasons and didn't come out for three more years. And by the time it came out, trends had changed, tastes had changed, and the cutting crew's sound had changed. The sound became much bigger and more dramatic and more epic, but not necessarily as poppy. And so the scattering kind of got lost in the shuffle. And they never really quite recuperated. Now, over the thir last 30 years, Cutting Crew, which is primarily Nick at this point, has only put out five albums, but each one of them is vastly different, I, to the point where I don't even think there's necessarily a specific Cutting Crew sound. They even put out a new album in 2015 called Add to Favorites, which, like the rest, is just completely different. But what he does, he does really well. He's really a prog guy at heart. In fact, in the early 90s, he was in the running for replacing Phil Collins in Genesis. He didn't get it, and he tells a really funny story about this at the end of this conversation. But I thought it would be really interesting to get to know Nick and how he's lived all his life and how he pays his bills and other things that he's been involved in. He wrote a huge hit in the UK for an artist named Mika. He was involved in the creation of the song Believe by Cher. He'll tell you about that as well. So the guy's been out there doing things basically on his own terms. The success that he got from that debut album has allowed him to do what he's wanted ever since. So I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to him. This conversation took place on Thanksgiving Day, which was a big deal to me, but of course meant nothing to him in the UK. So that made that day, which is my favorite holiday, that much extra sweet, being able to talk to Nick on Thanksgiving. So that meant a lot to me. He called me from his home in Hastings, which is near the southern coast of England. Well, first of all, I got to tell you how I became a Cutting Crew fan, because it was not in 1986. Okay. So in 1986, I remember, you know, those hits were huge. I always liked uh, one for the Mockingbird, probably the best. It was still a hit, but it wasn't as big as the other two. So sometimes I like those songs. Sometimes I'd leave them on when they came on the radio. Sometimes I did. <laughs> Thank I did. you. You're so kind. <laughs> well, I'm just being honest. You know, there was a, it. Uh, I didn't. I liked them, but I didn't feel motivated to go buy the album or anything like that. Yeah. And then about 12 years ago, so I'm kind of a sucker for anything 80s related, and I was watching a movie that had Kevin Bacon in it called Whitewater Summer. Yeah. And it was an 80s movie, but I watched it maybe 12 years ago. And there was this weird scene in it where nothing really, it wasn't a montage, but it was treated like a montage. It's just a long scene with very little dialogue in it. And this great song is playing underneath it. And I'm thinking, i got to know what this song is. I'm so intrigued. This is really cool. So I go on the Internet and I look it up, and it's 
Life in a Dangerous Time by you. Actually, back then, I think I had to wait till the movie was over. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, there was no IMDB. There was no IMDB right. to Google, yeah. yeah. I didn't have a, yeah, I didn't have a smartphone to Google that on real quick. So I, I was like, hey, the cutting crew, I always like, that's them, interesting. Then I went and bought the broadcast album, and now it remains one of my favorite albums from the 80s, for sure. Because when you package all of those together, Life in a Dangerous Time and then Fear of Falling, with those three hits from the 80s that I knew anyway, yeah. it, it's such a satisfying listen. So I don't know if, how many of your fans came in through Life in a Dangerous Time in Whitewater Summer, but that's how I came around to Cutting Through eventually. I just wanted that's you to a, know that. Thank you, John. That's a good story. And, and I haven't heard uh, that that being an entrance song before, but, um, <laughs> you know, we were proud of the album that it gave you, well, we didn't, we didn't sit to achieve anything in particular apart from sure. these these were 10 songs I'd written I'd always loved the kind of prog end of rock um, so songs uh-huh. like Life in a Dangerous Time has this kind of I don't know Genesis meets Thomas Dolby I don't know what it was and then the broadcast the big song at the end You know, the, the worst album ever that I can ever buy is an album that has one hit record, two hit records, and another eight that sound like bad versions of the hit records. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, yeah, so I, we enjoyed uh, it. Good, good. I really love those songs. Now, I'm going to ask you, I, I don't know how many people ask you specific questions about the songs that aren't the hits off that album, but I do want to ask you one, because... On the broadcast album, Life in a Dangerous Time and then Fear of Falling are almost treated like a sweet. Sort of one goes into the other, right?
when you wrote those songs, was it intended that they were to be sort of sweet or part one and part two? Or did they just fit nicely together and whoever produced it kind of put, tacked them onto each other? I could lie and tell you that it was a fiendish plan, but I'm afraid no. Um, uh, Terry Brown produced the album. Terry, who, you know, uh, That's right. produced all of the, the big early Rush albums. And he's um, That's right. That's right. A, mate, a mate of mine from an earlier band that I work with. So he would basically sit there and listen to me and Kevin throw all kinds of ideas at him. And so we've got that piece at the end of Life in a Danger, uh, where basically, cha-cha-cha-cha-cha, the drums are still going. And you hear me just yeah. on their headphones going, I can't help this hero yeah. fall. And boom, and we're in. So yeah. we, we loved all that stuff. Kevin used to call it ear candy. Um, he yeah. would, he would. We grew up I, I'm, uh, back in the. Well, he grew up in the '60s. You know, I grew up in the '70s, where you buy. I'd buy live albums and put a pair of best headphones I could afford, and just uh-huh. be in another world. So all that headphone stuff that is barely audible, yeah. um, and right on the fades, crossfades, and all that. We loved all that. So sure. There cool. you go. Wow. Okay. Yeah, those are. Whenever I play that album now, those are the songs that I'm hitting repeat on. I just, I love the like, you know, it's it's like a call to action. It's this martial. You just want to get up and march and like storm yeah. the beaches or something like that. Well, those. I'll tell you. Okay, I really I'll give that. I'll give you a bit more icing, John, and that is that uh, Life in a Dangerous Time was written completely by me before I even met Kevin in a oh. tiny. You could not make up how small this room was, and um, <laughs> I. I was learning to play keyboards, so I was playing all those uh, arpeggios and then the big power chords. And Kevin came over and said, yeah, yeah, I can handle that one. So he he made it sound magnificent. Really? But Uh. he then said to me, you know, I've got a song, and as you can probably see from the the co-writes, especially on the first album, it was basically, you know, my album with with Kevin helping here and there. But Fear of Falling Uh. is completely Kevin. That is completely Kevin. Really? riff the way the lyrics the the odd key changes the odd time changes total crazy cares yeah yeah wow so i'll give that yeah, one to him. that's great stuff you mentioned that writing it in a small room and i was just thinking i you know if regular people knew how unglamorous the creative mm-hmm. process can be sometimes it would strip so much of like this sheen of excitement and glamour to, to the music that we hear, you know? I mean, I, now with Facebook and Facebook Live and stuff, I follow a lot of my favorite musicians, and they'll post a picture of them in their studio, which is really just a corner of, like, their living room, you know, with some nice chairs and a microphone set up or whatever. And you realize that this stuff just happens. It's not happening in, like, a palace. It's happening in a in a broom closet, you know? Well, it's gone it's full circle. It's bedroom. gone full circle because what's happened is, for me anyway, shall I say, that, you know, I had, we, I had a daughter, we were broke, we lived in a rented apartment. I remember a great story when the milkman came to, uh, you know, in those days, a man would deliver milk. It was so, so very English. And he came along and he said, hey, Nick, saw you on top of the pops last night. And I said, yeah, how much is the bill? And I had to pay him in, you know, government tokens, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we had, uh, we had a tiny place, but what I wanted what I wanted to say was it's full circle because back when in the nineties and then the noughties, you know, I had the big studio with all the keyboards and all yeah. that. But you now I'm, I'm sitting in my studio. Oh, it has some lovely guitars in it, but you don't need anything, as you know. It's it's just a yeah, very good, yeah. powerful computer and a good microphone. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. 
I know it's uh, it's changed so much. So I, I I know you've talked about the hits from that album a million times, and I don't want to dwell on it too much. But I did. I was curious about one thing in regards to "I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight." Yeah. yeah. When you wrote it, I mean, to me, I think some of the some of the magic around that song is how it starts, the haunting synth line, and then that kind of fade up into you singing oh I, you know i would yep. sing it for you but i can't do that i hate that i can't sing in public but that sort of be, that intro announces something important when you're listening on the radio at least it did to me in 1986 yeah. you know that you're hearing those haunting synth lines and something is about to happen something exciting is about to happen when you wrote that song was that a decision that was, did you write that sort of intro or that kind of those kind of textures into the song or did terry brown come up with that on the okay bit of half and half i re- i wrote the uh, bump 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 exactly as uh-huh. it was on a very very cheap keyboard um huh. it probably sounded a little bit like you know mr rogers or something i'm not sure um <laughs> but but then what happens is you get we, we weren't we didn't have a keyboard player in our band it was just colin frosty nick and kevin so keyboards when we came to make the first album and this is where Every interview you do, I'm sure somebody mentions this, that there has to be 60% of luck involved. So not only did we have Terry Brown, who was drafted in as the third producer on that song, by the way, but may I add, because it went wrong so many times, and I was like a little snotty baby throwing my toys out the pram. It's not sounding good, you know. (laughs) But what happened was Peter John Vitesi, a keyboard player that somebody knew of, He'd already played with uh, an 80s band called Go West, and he's since I gone. Love Go West. Yeah, great stuff. And he's since gone on to produce and write with Annie Lennox and all this. But anyway, he turned up and he's a little Scotsman, about five feet high, and he said, "I like the parts, but the sound is shit." <laughs> <laughs> he uh-huh. made that huge, majestic sound, and it was probably made up of about eight different sounds. So therefore, my my bit of writing, his sounds, and then Terry was the one that, after the big intro in on my demo, it just went into the song. Terry said, "No, no, no, uh-huh. we should have we should have this huge everybody in the studio and everybody go, oh, why?" And I uh-huh. and I was like, I just said, "Well, yeah, we'll give it a try," you know. And of course, it it was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's how magic's made, right? Wow. It is, and, oh. and what it does is it sets the song up with a certain pomp, and that again, that's what I. Yeah. The only thing I ever tried to do, John, only only thing I ever tried to do was not write uh, a three and a half minute pop song. I just wanted it to be a great, catchy, beautiful yeah. song, but I wanted to have all my kind of prog background and things that made it five minutes long, you know. So uh-huh. I, I pulled that off. Interesting. So I mean, you got to clarify that for me a little bit because you had hits. But you're saying you didn't set out to. It sounds to me like you didn't set out to write hits. You wanted no. to write what you wanted to write, and if the and if the audience came to you and liked what you were doing, great. But you were not going to cater to like the pop charts. Do I have that right? Swear to God, yeah. Um, all I ever wow. wanted, all I ever did, Kevin and I were. I had to rein Kevin in a lot. I mean, if if there was, it was yin and yang. He was he was. King Crimson and I was the police, if you like. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere in the middle was Cutting Crew, but I had to rein him so often. So you know, he was he was a wonderful, gifted genius. But so I kept it. I kept its pop sensibility. But I swear, you know, I don't know what you swear on these days. But um, I I I don't know how you can 
sit down and, and, and write a hit record. What the hell true. does that mean? You know, we just yeah, we true. we got lucky. We got lucky. Yeah, yeah, you did what you wanted, and like you said, and the audience came to you. Now and they that's came why, to you for the and that's why you're interviewing me. Sorry, yeah, and that's yeah, why you're interviewing me, true. talking about life in a dangerous time and the other big album tracks. You know, so it's great. Yeah, yeah, so many good things on that album. Now I want to know about the height of hype. I mean, how crazy you were a good-looking guy. You had really good-looking videos. I, I think did. Did you open for Madonna or something like that? I feel like, did you go on tour with Madonna or something like Not that? Not Madonna, no. Um, Starship, Bangles, Huey Lewis. Uh, we headlined oh. with Huey, uh, we headlined with the Bangles as well, where they were they were supporting us in some gigs. So yeah, that was a, yeah. imagine that that was a hell of a show, eh? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, how crazy did it get back then? Were you just you had been sort of a I think you had been sort of you had been a musician for a while in other bands like The Drivers. happened for a good 10 years or so and now it's happening and you're becoming i mean you could not when you paid the milkman but eventually you become wealthy i imagine for a little while there anyway what is going on in your head how and you have kids are you married at this time um, i had a girlfriend yeah well i had a daughter that's a, a six-month-old daughter when it hit number one yeah amazing <laughs> crazy yeah. i mean well, like, what was going on in ha- what was going on in my yeah, head really on. yeah was it, it was immense, and it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, I've been a professional musician since 18, and uh, I had a hit when I was 27, and so you think you're ready for it. You know, it's all you dream of. Uh-huh. Sure. But of course, nothing prepares you for what happened, because it was the first single. You know, a lot of bands release an album, and, uh, you know, second album, single yeah. three becomes the hit. It was the first thing we ever did. We we hadn't done a gig. I mean, we, you know, we were, we were a good band, but we'd never never done a gig. And so therefore, when it went to number one in America, you know, which is the the ultimate ultimate ultimate, um, we re. I'm a little country boy from from you know Sussex, as I told you earlier, which is a little uh-huh. thick, thick county, um, and I'm very proud of my roots. But we were living sure. in, um, on Sunset. We were living at the um, Hollywood Roosevelt. We we had cabana rooms there for a year. <laughs> oh wow! Oh wow! The culmination yeah, based... of all these years, right? It's happening. I know. I know. After all this time, suddenly you pinch yourself. And I have to be honest: when Kevin died, any folks that are listening that didn't know, you know, my my best mate and co, you know, former Kev guitarist died about ten years ago now. But he was the guy with all the stories from those days. He could remember really? every crazy party, every oh, this. Oh man. But I do remember some of it, and I just remember thinking, 
when we played Radio City Music Hall and we did Johnny Carson, um, Kevin was yeah. throwing up. Kevin was throwing up in the toilets on the Johnny Carson one because he was Canadian. <laughs> you see, he knew how big that was. Um, that's right. That's right. For us Brits, we were like Johnny who, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always assumed Cutting Crew was Canadian, but I guess that was the Kevin connection. Was it only the Kevin. only Canadian in the band? Okay. Only Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. So what's the major memory? The I can't believe that happened to me memory. Mm. And if it's, I mean, anything, a, a big show, you bumped into a hero. What's the major thing that you're comfortable telling us? That, uh, from I'll, give you, I'll give you one, two, two quick ones. Um, the Grammy, after the Grammy nomination, the party, Prince invited all the new artists because he liked to think he was hanging out with the new blood. So we were at Prince's party, and, you know, already by then I was a huge fan. I mean, something, you know, yeah. I could never aspire to do anything like he does, but I just thought, what a cool guy. But my, my joke is, and this is totally respectfully of the man, but he was at the party all night, but because he's so little, we never ever saw him. <laughs> <laughs> we could see these six-foot gorillas standing around around him, so we knew he was within that area. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, that's great. But no, my, my overriding memory, John, is I think it, it's, yeah, it still was, I'm very proud of this. We played the first ever gig in, uh, not mainland China, but in Taiwan, which was part of China, that they allowed the kids to stand up. So oh. we have a documentary of it, and you see them all turning up. They, we started filming about an hour before the show, and the excitement on these people... They'd never stood up before, so it was this odd thing where I'd, we'd finish a song and they'd sit down, and I'd go, no, stand up. There was no, uh, what do you call it, dry ice machines in Taiwan. They had this oh. thing that was basically fat that they kind of burnt to a level where it gave off a, 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 a horrible, stinky haze, and all it did was layer the, the, the stage with about a quarter of an inch of fat. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, look pretty. Great. I did some good stage diving that night. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's great. Is that doc? You mentioned a documentary. Is that on YouTube or can someone watch that somewhere? I have been waiting till long. I don't mind saying this on on air. You know, I've been waiting long enough. Okay. Prob- probably that company doesn't exist anymore. I've got it here. So oh. I'll probably yeah. Now it's been nearly thirty years. So I'll um yeah. that'll be company. Yeah, we'll do something with it. Yeah. You should. Put it on face on uh, YouTube, if nothing else. I don't know. Whatever you exactly. will capitalize on it if you can. Very cool. Okay, so now you're one of the hottest bands in the world, and yet all momentum ends basically because you can't get the second album out quick enough. And when it does, I I like it, but it's so different from the first that it, everything just kind of stops, right? Almost immediately, yeah. I mean, we toured, yeah, toured it through, on? but but all the big stuff. I think you can blame a little bit of it on momentum. I think you can blame a little bit of it on. I wouldn't use the word blame, but you know, we we moved on in our sound, and maybe the fans, uh, or not not drastically though. You know, we didn't make a country album. Yeah. Um, but um, I know exactly what it was, and, I, and I'm I'm absolutely convinced of this, and this isn't a, an excuse, but. This is now 1989, and it's just crossing into the 90s, and I can remember at the record company, it was like, oh, hi, Nick, yeah, yeah, what, what is it you want? Yeah, oh, yeah, fine, good, good. 
Yeah, um, come in. We've got Janet Jackson coming in. We've got Nina Cherry coming in. We've got Soul to Soul coming in. And the music business was moving on to to that lovely, gorgeous yeah. sort of a, a urban dance sort of stuff, you know. And yeah. we were this '80s band with our with our shoulder pads, yeah. <laughs> big big hair. Although we we dressed that right down because we were you know we were British. Um, but uh-huh. it, it was unstoppable. You, we were, I could just, it was a bit like the, the man on the life raft, you know, you were holding on and it was just, just drifting away into the yeah. distance. And I have no, no bitterness, no bitterness at all, you know, because we, uh-huh. we, we took our window and I'm still getting up on stage singing now, so that that's okay. Yeah. But, but yeah, I think it was an unstoppable movement where we were kind of made to look slightly redundant. Right. Well, wasn't there, so we should say, for anyone not aware, the second album called The Scattering comes out three, three years later. And to my, in, to my ear, it's a much bigger, more epic sound. I wouldn't say there's like three <clears throat> and a half minute, like you were saying, three and a half minute pop hits that no. make sense on the radio. But it's a no. very grand, epic sounding album. Every song is just big. I yeah. think that's my interpretation. problem going on that delayed the release of that album for all those years, right? I mean, what's, or were you always planning on taking three years to write your <laughs> Oh, God, album? no. Yeah, you, you, okay. get your, you get your foot in that door, you know, even as a, a young 26-year-old, I know, you know, that time gobbles yeah. you up. No, I, we were ready. We were ready and waiting. We, uh, our manager suddenly started getting really strange and not giving any uh, we wanted an American manager to join him. You know, we just had a number one, the Grammy nomination, and he would, wouldn't hear of it. So we were like, well, you know, what, what are you going to do to manage us when a promoter in Arkansas phones up? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so we rowed with him, and then that took about six months of law to take its time. And also, the, the record company had got very precious. That's the one bit that I'll always remember hurting me. It was the, where's the next eye in your arms? And I'm like, well, yeah. you ain't you ain't gonna get it. You're gonna get the best I can ever do, and I promise right. you that I, I'll squeeze every drop of my talent and artistic and um, you know uh, an eye on the on the, the charts out of me. But you're not gonna yeah. get another die in your arms. That can't happen. And so they'd say, this one's pretty good, but you know, just go away for another three months and try again. You know, and it was, oh, it was no way. Yeah, it was insulting and it hurt me a lot and. 
in the end, they came back to the, the first ten songs we wrote anyway, you know, which and it wasted yeah. a year and a half. And you can't oh, man. use a business. You can't do that. Uh, maybe this is obvious, but the so the scattering was done. That was what you were following up with, and it took three years to came out, come out. Or were you creating the scattering over the course of those three years? Um, well, we it took it was we took about a year to record it. I think it probably okay. wasn't quite three years, maybe two years, two and a bit. But it okay. took a year to record it, but then a year of effing around, and and as I said, yeah. going back to the original tracks. Yeah. You know, you you start right. They brought a lovely producer in called Don Gaiman, who is the guy that does oh, all yeah. the yeah, you know, Don um, does all the John Cougar Mellencamp, you know, yep. stuff. Yep. So we we were, you know, Nick clicked his fingers, and we had Don Gaiman because I love John Cougar Mellencamp. Those were lovely days. Yep. <laughs> um, but <laughs> he came along and he did a couple of tracks, and then the then the Americans said, and it was all because we were really run by America by then. You know, Britain had kind of gone, okay. hey, you guys. You yeah. live out there and do that. But then they sent in another guy, and it was like, well, there you are. There's five new songs. And they said, do you know what? Those songs you wrote a year and a half ago, they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all this for nothing, right? Yeah. We'll take the original ones. So did, when you, did you guys, I mean, was there much of a splash when it came out? Did they put you back out on tour? I know none of the songs really took hold on the radio, but were you – uh, headlining a tour, did you go back to play Johnny Carson? Anything like that? No, nothing. We we did a we did a few American dates and then then kind of took off on the the world tour. You know, kind of when 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 the record uh-huh. isn't selling that well, you get out there and and start playing and earning money from your gigs like you could in those days. So how are you feeling? I mean, do you are you recognizing as it's happening that like you were saying, you're you're losing grip on that life raft. Or are you, I mean, is that wisdom that you've gained over 30 years now? Or at the time, are you thinking, well, this one didn't work. We'll do another one. We'll get back on the horse. We'll go back out with the Bengals and Huey Lewis. We'll be fine. Yeah. What are you thinking at the moment? That, that's a very, very good question, John. That's, I, that's my favorite question of the evening because I think there were two guys in the band who were like, hey, don't worry, you know, we'll do another album. Yeah. And uh, But I was old and, as you say in England, I was old enough and ugly enough. <laughs> <laughs> to, to see the the change, you know, it was on. It was yeah. so obvious. The yeah. phone calls, you know, when you phone up, a, you phone up a girlfriend, or you phone up a, sure. um, or a, you phone up a, I don't know, your swimming bars or something, and there's not the same person on the end of the phone, and it's like, yeah. who are you? Who's this calling? Yeah, right. Then who again? With what? Absolutely. Oh, okay, I'll write this down, and they don't write it down. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's okay, and I, I want to get across to everybody listening, you know, um, I've had a fantastic ride, I'm still riding, but I've never, ever, from, from playing the pubs in England for 10 years before Cutting Crew and, you know, and earning my stars, absolutely, I've never, ever had any sense of entitlement in this industry. Sure. I think, I yeah. think it's a I think it's a dirty word. You know, you work hard for it, yeah. and you, you ride the horse, and then if you get thrown off one day, okay, fine. You don't have to get back on it. You might have to find another horse, but don't don't whinge about it. As I said, the only thing right. I, that upset me was the way they wasted a year and a half of my life by desperately needing to have another number one. You know, as I said, I did my best. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you did. <clears throat> now... I don't know if most people, I mean, if people are aware enough, and I, when I say people, I mean sort of casual fans, people who, yeah, I love those songs, I remember that, 
but maybe haven't been following your entire career. There's even a third album called Compass Mentis that I only just recently found out about. I like that one a lot, actually. one over the other. I like them all. But that one to me sounds a little more streamlined for radio or something. But that never even saw the light of day, right? Or did it come out in like Japan or something? Yeah, exactly. It was one of those um so this the so here we go again. If you want to talk about luck, the front end of Cutting Crew was luck, luck, luck. It was well it was great songs. It was a band that looked good and looked right for the time. Uh, we had the right producer, we had the right keyboard player we got lucky with you know the videos and the timing but if you want to talk about the bad luck end and that is that by the third album when we're we're almost dead and buried we write this yeah. really cool album it's just me and kevin now and uh kevin played bass guitar i played all the keyboards on that and uh oh, nice. we, we made our little magnum opus and then we delivered it and i can remember sitting in the studio one day and this man who looked ominously like an accountant <laughs> <laughs> course <laughs> coming in and having a chat with somebody and then they said yes, 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 yes and they said well when when are you going to finish this album we said well actually we're about two or three weeks away and they said good well as soon as you've done deliver it you'll get your money and then we're dropping you and oh no, really that was when emi bought virgin over here in britain they bought it and it was you know the night of the long knives so i think they they killed off 120 bands in in two weeks Yes, I remember. Yeah. So there you go. Oh, and wow. Pay la vie. I would much rather they'd kept their shitty money and uh, I could have had my songs, you know. Yeah, yeah. But they, I mean, someone, even though they, this is something that comes up a lot on these interviews that I'm always baffled by. You put out an album and your label's behind you, and honestly, whether it performs well or not, they still do a second album with you that almost and in most cases with the people I tend to seek out for this mm. show, it, it usually underperforms. Mm. But they still, but in your case, they still gave you money to make a third album, even though mm-hmm. they really had practically no intention of doing anything with Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Or were they and waiting so, to hear it? N- never. Never in a million years. I think that, you, you, again, you, you are very astute there, John. That is the, the, um, and imagine how much albums cost in those days. Yes, we went we went to Jimmy Page's studio on the River Thames and sat around with the Swans and you know made this album with in-house cook girls and you know all that oh. sort of stuff. 
This is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, um, we didn't waste any time in the studio, but that's what you did back then, yeah? Yeah. Um, so they were quite happy to piss all that um, money up the, up the thing, but absolutely no intention. They, they'd already sold the company halfway through the album. They knew, and so they weird. would just go, yeah. So, so I, I, it drives me mad that there's a song on um, Compass Mentis called Frigid is England, which I think is yeah. one of the finest recordings Cutting Crew ever made. And... All I ever want is to own it, but they go, no, no, we own this. I'm sorry. (laughs) We own it, and we're not going to do anything with it. It's like we're going to give you all this money to make an album. We're not going to do anything with it. We're not going to let you have it. Nothing. Um, um, Just you know what that is? That's absolute fear by the A&R men of me getting hold of it and then Tom Hanks phoning me up and saying, do you know what? I've heard your song. I like it on my new album. And, of course, that that A&R man will go, oh, no, I gave it away. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. It's all internal politics. It's a common thread that comes up on here. Uh, now, okay, so what? What are you? You remain pretty low key, then. Well, I mean, you remained fairly. You put out two extra two albums in the last twenty five years, but mostly low key. I think I read somewhere in the nineties you lived in the, in Barbados. Was yeah, that right? Yeah. You made enough money where you're just going to go live, kind of on the beach in Barbados and <laughs> do what for ten years. Some of it was on the beach. I can. Why wouldn't you? Um, yeah, we we. I did very well uh, financially back then. The songs that make me money, the Cutting Crew songs, excuse me. Uh, you know, Sony, who I was signed with, said, "Well, we we want them for another ten years." And so I said, "Okay, fine. You know, what are you going to pay me?" And um, yeah. that that in those days, you could go and live on islands, uh, dip your toes in the water and write songs so that's what happened that was the next bit the bit that i'm um yeah i'm proud of but it was totally invisible and that is that i was writing for other people you didn't you didn't have to live in london to do that in fact it's rather nice when you live in barbados they they obviously come to you (laughs) sure yeah (laughs) plan a trip down to barbados to see nick and see what he's doing right exactly Uh, okay okay I wrote with um, a big, big rock band that live over here called Marillion, who um, yeah. Uh, yeah. there's a couple of tracks of them. And then the oddest story you're going to hear all night is the share. Do you believe yeah. in life after love? I don't know. You've, have you read up on that a little bit? I've read that somewhere that you had something to do with that. You didn't write it, but do you you produce the demo of it or something like that? 
Okay, right. I'm just going to walk through the studio. There's a, there's a dead area here. Hold on a minute. I was just okay. filling up my wine glass. Happy Thanksgiving! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can't make up stories like this. They are so beautiful uh, that, that it sounds like you make them up. Uh, a lad who I went to school with five years younger, you know, looking up to Nick, who was the local pop star, phones uh-huh. me up and says, I've got this song, um, and we're, we've, we formed this band, and would you produce it? So Kevin and I went down to this tiny little studio, and um, he said, it's nearly finished, but we love the way in, um, I've been in love before how the, the chords change, and we really like that second chord. I've got my guitar here. should be able to okay. make this work. So, catch my breath. This chord coming up. Close my eyes. It's a pretty special chord. So yes. He said, we love that chord. So he'd written this tune, and it went, Do you believe in life after... I think it changed a bit there or something. So I said, well, why don't you make the second chord to, do you believe that chord, the, the been in love before chord? He took it, and then I said, and I think you could change the, 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 the melody a little bit, uh, the end where, I can feel some... Uh, there was a way I tweaked uh-huh. the words anyway, a long time ago. So we, that was it. We got paid a bottle of whiskey uh, for friends. I, nine years later, I'm in my studio... Um, uh, I think I was hoovering, you know, cleaning up or something. Uh-huh. The radio's on, I can hear. And I was like, what the? I know that tune. I know that tune. So immediately the telephone's ringing, and it's this young lad, Mark, and he says, oh my God, Cher's recorded our songs. Do you, okay, so I mean, my natural question. Excuse me if this is insensitive, but do you get paid any money for the success of Believe, or were you just somebody, a cog in the creative wheel? That's why I think it's the most hilarious story. You know, No, not a penny. Oh. We had a very, very lovely bottle of whiskey eight years earlier. Oh, oh wow. Oh, so man. we did that. Crazy bit of luck. Yeah, um, a little bit of luck and, 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 and a good thing for the, the CV. But I was writing songs. I'd, um, I, I had a big hit about seven or eight years ago with a guy called Mika, who um, I don't think oh, any sure. business. I know Mika. Life you and do. Cartoon. I have Motion. that up. Life and Cartoon something. Well, I wrote Relax, Take It Easy with him. You did? Mm. No way.
And that sold nine million albums in Europe. Um, what? But I, I've just really, that was my invisibility until about five years ago when I, I, I you know, I'd already made the Grinning Souls album and I, I just wanted, to, Kevin had died. It was time. I just, I knew I was still singing well. I knew I'd, I didn't look bad and, uh, and I watched other acts of my era not singing as well as me and looking older than me. So I thought, you know, I'm going to get out there and do it again. And, and I've not stopped gigging, really, for the last five years. So when I saw, I should say for anyone who doesn't know, we, I, this happened because in, I think it was August or September, I drove out, I live in Denver, and I drove to Salt Lake City to see the Lost 80s live tour with, with my brother and sister and sister-in-law. And you were a part of that, along with a bunch of other bands. Mm. And, um, of, and we met there briefly, but I, uh, you guys were the ones. That was a really great day. It was so great to relive some of those memories and yep. see those bands. That was my first time seeing you. And I have to admit, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to anyone else who, was, who performed at that show, but of everyone that performed, some I had already seen, but I came away most hungry for more from you. I yeah. thought it was like I, I could do with another 45 minutes from Cutting Crew on this tour. Thank so what, when did you start kind of, what is your touring like now? And then I want, to, I want to talk about the new album, but when you go out now, is it largely the nostalgia circuit where you're playing three to eight songs, or do you ever get to go out as Cutting Crew alone playing your entire discography? Great. Well, that was the first night of the tour, so I take that as a really big compliment because it was a oh, band good. I'd never, yeah, you never played great, with. Man. But we, by the end of the tour, we were going down so well, we were doing another 15 minutes, so that says how oh, well good. it went. Yeah, thank good. you, and, and that's a great compliment. Um, we, I can pick these, these uh, heritage, or whatever you want to call them, you know, retro gigs up to a penny. Um, there's so many of them now all over the world, yeah. and... Yeah. I, and I don't mean that one bit uh, uh, disrespectfully. I, I pick no. and I hope I choose carefully, and they're fun every now and again. They they pay okay. You hang out with all your mates from from the eighties, yeah. and and then everybody goes home. But um, no, I'm very lucky, uh, John, to have. Well, what did we do this year? We played Argentina, Chile, Peru as cutting crew. Um, we played the most hilarious show, I think, in my 35 years in the music business, where a promoter in Hania in Crete, which is a Greek, Greek island. Wow. Yeah. Yep. He phoned up and he says, this is Nikos. He says, I love your, I love your band. It's my favorite band ever. You come to play my festival in, in June. And I said, yeah, great. He said, I have no money, but I give you a good hotel, a five-piece band, all the flights, lots of food, and got good fun. So we got paid, you know, pennies. We turned yeah. up, and it's it's a heavy stroke death metal festival. No, really? <laughs> <laughs> of course. So there's all these thousands of people with you know the big biceps and tats and the death, the devil sign and all that. And and Cutting Crew walk on, and we were like kind of Dolly Parton at Glastonbury. You know, it was it was <laughs> it was. It was it was fantastic, because we're good, you know, and we rock. Sure. They, they loved us. It was like, uh, cartoon crew, cartoon crew. The band who were on before us were called Rotting Christ. 
Oh, that's great. <sighs> oh, man. So, yeah, so you're in a very enviable position. I mean, you get to just sit at home and be and receive offers like that. And who knows? Some are good, some are bad, but you get to do that whenever you want, and that's how you make your living, right? I, the week before, we played in Antibes, which is, uh, you know, the millionaire's playground in the south of France, four-piece unplugged with a cajon and an accordion for sick children. And um, it was no beautiful, you know, three-part three harmonies. And then about five weeks ago, it's in a sweaty pub, you know, in London with about yeah. some... 400 people so it's great I, I love it because I'm, I think I am clever enough to be able to to wear a few different hats uh, so when you do the retro stuff you go on you swallow you swallow your pride and you play four songs and, and then go get off you know but but yeah. we can play an hour and a half to to adoring fans as well <laughs> oh that's great oh that's great I would love to see one of those shows sounds like I'm gonna have to fly to some remote island somewhere if I want to see the full cutting crew show, you know, and I might have to sit through rotting Christ first. Exactly. And you will not sit through them. They are astonishing. That's true. We have been invited back for next year's Lost 80s, so we will be coming through, I'm sure, Salt Lake City again and all those Californian dates. So that's definitely happening next year. Excellent. Yeah, Salt Lake City loves the 80s, loves it. Okay. So I've got got about five, five minutes, John, okay? Okay, okay. Talk, tell me about Add to Favorite, because I'm trying to pin down these days what is the Cutting Crew sound, and I really have no idea, because <laughs> every one of your albums is going in all different directions. You're the one common thread between it all. What? Tell me about Add to Favorites and when that, where that came from. It's, it's, there's Dixieland, there's jazz in there, there's everything in there. When I look back on roads I've crossed Days are won and the times are lost I was 50 shades of grey before I met you Plans were broken, doors wide open Colors dream like a faded slow No, I can't find a way to forget you Cause if you look north, I look south We meet up at our roundabout We always seem to find the simple Take the bus, but I'm my own. It's hard to face another day. It was the biggest mistake of my life. The biggest mistake of my life of that day. The biggest mistake of my life. When I walked out on you, it was the biggest mistake of my life. The biggest mistake of my life of that day. It was the biggest mistake of my life when I walked out on you. You like it? I I do. I don't uh, want you to like it all, but do you like some of it? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It's um. I just find it. I'm trying to put my finger. I'm trying to like. Who is Cutting Crew exactly? And I can't figure it out. Yeah. I like it because I. But I don't. I. Uh, you know. I, whenever a band puts out something that's so different, there's a part of you that's like, but I like what they're about. I like what they already do. So you have to disassociate yourself from their history and say, on its own terms, how do I feel about this? And then you realize, I do like this. It may not think, be yeah, my I, perception I, of cutting crew, but I like it. I, I'm, I'm a bad person to sign to a record label because I don't 
play by the rules in as much as, and I'm certainly not a rebel at all, but, you know, John Bon Jovi's made, you know, 22 albums, and they are sometimes spectacular, sometimes lame, but they always sound like John, and they always have that yeah. Bon Jovi sound. And that is a yeah. remarkable achievement, and I... I don't. I didn't mean that you know, condescendingly. It's like, wow, good on you. No, I know. Um, yeah. Van Morrison can turn up, and as long as it's his funny, squeaky little Irish voice in the middle there, which I adore, it's a Van Morrison album. You know, everybody yeah. goes, hey, yeah. it's, it's Van. With, uh, who else can I think? Sting. Sting pushed it a, a lot. You know, he tried different things, sure. but, but his voice is always there in the middle of it. What I yeah. did was really going back to the first question which was you know about life in a dangerous time is that i don't feel any entitlement in this business i don't feel as if i should play it safe ever and if that means that the album flops i really i swear on my daughter's life i mean this if the album flops i would much rather leave to my daughter an album that she goes mm. wow dad you know i i love it and i really mean that so yeah. With Grinning, Grinning Souls was this angry, growling album, you know, that with was Kevin. an angry album, yes. When I've fallen through the cracks You got me standing on the lines I pray for love to rescue me I'm blowing every time Kevin dying of cancer, you know, I was in his town. Yeah. I was I was going back during and uh, during sometimes and uh, afterwards to to go and get his scripts for his cancer and then then go and make a song. So that had that sound. So back to the question, add to favorites. Well, it was really me saying I'm going to make an album where I I kind of doff my hat to all the people that I think are pretty cool. So. Uh, yeah. There's a Jackson Brown-ish one there. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a this, that, and the other. There's a Warren Zevon yeah. one in there. Um, and yeah. as a songwriter, and I hope some of the songwriters that maybe listen to this, you know, when you when you sit down at the piano, we can write. You know, good songwriters can write anything, and that's often a problem because we we're, we're too broad. Yeah. True. Yeah. So what should happen then is a manager who I've never had for twenty years. <laughs> oh, interesting. Comes in and says, Nick. Stop writing those Jackson Brown songs, or <laughs> Nick, stop stop writing those reggae folk songs. Um, right, right. But I don't have that check, and therefore yeah. that's what adds to favorites is. And and I it, it adore it only be, uh, only because I think that I'm writing at a level that I've never written before. And if it confuses people, I humbly apologize. But at the same time, <laughs> um, it's 
you know, we're out there. I, I you know, I know. I'm, I hang out with a bunch of other '80s guys who all make albums, and we all make fun of how little we sell. You know, we know yeah. the chances of us getting another hit record are so small, unless you can get it on yeah. on a on a film. But at the same time, she just happened to be beautiful. The last track on the album is yeah, heading towards a movie in Hollywood at the moment. So who knows? Seven days of summer faded like the sun She was old enough to haunt me Young enough to run Offered her my kingdom She promised me the Covered up my shame I was lonely and lost all again If I turned a different corner Or spoke a different tongue I'd never taste her wonder So easily won Her love was like a gun That was held against my the subtext to all this honestly is that you are comfortable financially enough yeah. that you can put out something like add to favorites and not really care what happens because it's not going to impact your bottom line that much i mean let's be honest about that right you put you have enough hits and you've got a great career going that you can do you can make these creative risks and have it not impact you that much that, that, album co- that, album, that, album cost me, that album cost me $100,000 at least. And oh, probably, really? And probably another 20000 to promote it, and, uh, and it sold 15000 I suppose, maybe something like that. Okay. I don't know. And so, yes, you're right, and I am one of those weirdo guys that isn't famous like um, Van Morrison and John Bon Jovi and Sting, but uh-huh. wrote two or three hits, that yeah. will never go away and just yeah. get played forever and turn up on films and adverts and, and, and all the, you know, the stuff that some of your younger listeners will probably be spitting at me now, you know, the devil, the devil. Um, no, no, no. But that's what happened. So I'm very lucky. Yeah. I, 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 have yeah. a, I have a lovely income. And so therefore, when it comes to the next album, I don't, I don't need to, but I don't want to play it safe. And, but yeah. if, if she just happened to be beautiful, which is a you know kind of almost like a country folk song, if that mm-hmm. was the next thing the world heard of Nick Van Eden Cutting Crew, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's great. 
Well, Nick, I love you a lot. Thank you so much for talking to me. And um, you've done, a, you've put out a lot of music in this life, in my life, that has made me happy. And I want to thank you for that and for continuing on. And I'm so glad that you've had the success that you have because you absolutely deserve it. One other thing: Do you regret not being not joining Genesis? <laughs> that was That's so the good. one thing I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. I would have loved to have given it a go, you know, yeah. to play with my absolute idols. I I remember when they sent the cassette, as it was in those days, of the nine songs. And one of them to learn was, um, turn it on, turn it on, turn it on again. And that I, I, get, and I remember count, counting these bars of three and seven and two. Um, I sang my, my bum off. I was I was great. and let, And I said to them, I said, if you want a guy that looks like me and sounds like that, that's the best I can ever do. And uh, I was getting married in 1996, the first time ever, and uh, that afternoon I was marrying, and and at 11 o'clock in the morning, a phone rang. Hello? Hello, Nick. Mike Rutherford here. And I was like, like, oh, hello. He said, "Um, I hope it's not a bad time, but... um, we thought you were a jolly nice chap and um, probably the nicest of the bunch. We only we only uh, listened to three, um, uh, but we just didn't think you had quite enough high-end crack in your voice. So we're, we're going to wish you well and um, hope it's not spoilt your day. And I said, <laughs> I said, Mike, I'm getting married in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I did kind of spoil my day a little bit. <laughs> There you have it, Nick Van Eed. I love that guy. That was really fun to talk to him. I couldn't believe it. So I mentioned in there, having seen Nick in concert last summer at the Lost 80s Live tour, well, the next two weeks are going to be guests who also played on this past year's Lost 80s Live tour, at least in the States. And so next week, we're going to be talking to Bill Wadhams of Animotion. And he's going to tell us all about the creation of their song, Obsession, which you still hear today, and get to know Bill a little bit. Very interesting story, too. So I hope you'll come back next week for that. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, Makevich, for producing the podcast and putting it together. If you guys would like to stay in contact with me, you can send me a message on Facebook. You can like our page. You can also email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I don't do Twitter very much, but I can check a message if you send me one. Uh, But if there's an artist out there that you love that you would like to hear more from, tell me and I'll see if I can track that person down. Thanks, everybody. Oh, and go into the archives. If you like Nick and music from this era, we cover a lot of this. What is the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of rock stardom? And I would say the sweet spot is about 1975 to 1995. Not everything fits in there, but a lot of it does. So if you like this kind of stuff, go into our archives and see what else you can find. You'll love it. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.